I've known Elisa and her work for a long time, sort of by reputation. We first met actually last fall when we were on a panel together at NYU about copyright and fair use. And Elisa is about as well positioned as any artist I've ever met to talk about those issues because the work she does uh, directly engages with our copyright laws in so many ways. Uh, Elisa is a Brooklyn-based uh, video artist who creates pop culture remixes. She has mashed up Mad Men into feminists and The Real Housewives into lesbians. And um, she, her latest work includes... Um, <laughs> Sorry? Excellent. Elise has also been very active, as I mentioned, on issues related to copyright and copyright infringement, working on uh, exemptions to the DMCA's anti-circumvention provisions as they relate to ripping of DVDs. She's a contributor to the Book of Jezebel, the upcoming Routledge compilation, uh, companion to remix studies, and uh, the future of now making sense of our always-on, always-connected world. And she is currently an artist-in-residence uh, at Public Knowledge and the iBeam Art and Technology Center. So without further ado, I'll, I'll turn you over to Elisa. And again, in typical format, I think she'll speak for a while, probably show us some examples of her work, and then we'll open it up to some conversation among all of us. So thanks for joining Great. us. Great. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me here. It's so wonderful to be uh, here at Berkman. I went to school at Simmons College, kind of in the area, um, and I learned how to edit video down the block at Cambridge Community Television, um, where I learned sort of the basics of media activism. So I'm so excited to be back here. Um, I love the work that Berkman does, and so I'm excited to share my work with you guys. Um, so I'm an artist and activist based in Brooklyn. Um, I'm going to talk mostly about my experiences as a content creator um, using hosting platforms such as YouTube to distribute my work um, and the policy issues that I found that was embedded in that seemingly simple process. Um, then I'll open up for discussion um, and uh, I'd love to hear about any of your experiences that you've had either as content creator, lawyers, um, advocates, policymakers, um, and just keep the conversation going. Um, but in the meantime, I wanted to show you a quick example of my work. Um, this is a video that I made last year in collaboration with another video editor, uh, Mark Folletti. Um, is anyone watching Mad Men this season? Or like, have you ever watched it in any season? Okay, maybe, some, yeah, okay. So um, this was a remix of, of The Women of Mad Men. Um, I really wanted to see what an entirely female-framed version of the show would look like. Uh, so I took all the female characters out of the show and re-edited it into a, a version that re-articulates um, the feminist frustrations that the women felt amid rigid gender roles. Um, and it's set to the 1966 Motown hit, Keep Me Hanging On. <laughs> Really? Mm -hmm. You 
father was too. Never expecting to be any other way than what he is. I forgot for a second that you're incapable of doing something nice without expecting something nice in return. It all comes down to what I want versus what's expected of me. revolves around hacking pop culture and that's something that is really meaningful to me. I love making pop culture hacks, using pop culture as a spoonful of sugar to make the socio-political critique go down a little bit easier. Um, and part of the reason why I love hacking popular culture is because it helps me negotiate my own um, fine line between, between being a fan of popular culture and between being, sorry, okay. Remixing helps me um, negotiate the fine line between being a fan of popular culture um, and being a critic of it. And so one of the things like with Real Housewives, like <laughs> I, I found myself really drawn to these women and yet I couldn't turn off like the feminist filter that I had paid so much to learn in undergrad. Um, and so how do, how do I negotiate that fine line between like this feminist queer theory that I have um, but also kind of wanting to turn that part of my brain off and indulge in popular culture. So Pop culture hacking helps me combine the two. Um, did anybody see the Jay-Z um, six-hour performance piece at Pace Gallery? Jay-Z um, went to Pace Gallery, which is a, a really f sort of famous, well-known, reputable art gallery in New York, and said, I want six hours to take over your space, and I want celebrities there um, and art world people and fans and um, he did a six hour long performance piece in the vein of uh, Marina Abramovic and um, what did he perform? Well he performed his song Picasso Baby numerous times over and over again and so I just want to show you a quick example of that video um, this is just the original version The venues change, and, and just by 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 nature of the venues, the, the performance change. Right, if you're in a smaller venue, it's a bit more intimate, so you get the you feel the you know the energy of the people. Straight for work, straight for work. And the concert, especially a large concert, all that energy comes to you. Like, what do you do with that energy? You know, so today it's, it's kind of it's kind of an exchange. We have somebody to try to back off, you know. 
when arts are becoming part of the galleries, it became a separation between culture and even in hip hop, people like you know, almost like artists to bourgeois. We're artists. We're we're alike. We're cousins. That's what was really exciting for me, bringing the worlds back together. I try not to have any expectations going into a performance. I try to just let it happen. Just get into the moment and, you know, whatever happens, happens. video online um, and then uh, it went up on HBO as like a 30-minute uh, mini documentary as well um, I I couldn't watch this without thinking of another song that had come on line the same week um, which was a Taylor Swift song called I'm 22 um, and so when I watched this video all I could see and now with the sound off you can kind of get the sense you never see the art world this happy you never see people so excited to be seen and recognized by a popular culture figure. The art world usually um, is happy to be underground and happy to be critical and happy to be, that's kind of what the art world does and is and how they function. Um, they critique culture. So to be able to see um, these artists and critics and curators all in one place being so happy to finally be recognized by popular culture, it made me really want to make something more like this.
Okay, so um, that was obviously the remix version. Um, and, oh, thanks. So my goal always, either with the more complicated version of Mad Men Set Me Free, um, or this super simple pop culture hack, um, my goal always is to take two pieces or three pieces or multiple pieces of media that should never be in the same sentence together and combine them to make something new. Hopefully that's a little bit better than either of the originals. Um, and so, with that intent, um, I really enjoy talking about and studying the transformative aspect of Remix Video, because that, at the end of the day, is what makes Remix interesting, at least to me, and legally, that, that's what makes Remix um, fall under fair use. So, with that said, um, my work is highly eligible, I think, and I'm happy for other people to disagree, to be um, highly eligible, eligible to be considered a fair use um, by a judge if I'm ever sued, I think. Again, I'm open for feedback on that. Um, but does ever, everyone knows what fair use is, I assume, right? Um, so, no, okay. Oh, touche. 
Yeah. Um, well, for the purposes of this conversation, I think I think we can maybe agree that fair use is a safety valve in copyright law that allows for copyright materials to be used without permission for purposes of comment, critique, satire, homage. Um, the important part, I think, is that at the end, the work is transformative um, and that it's not a market substitute for the original. So those are kind of the guidelines that I go by for fair use. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm an artist who just relies on this in order to distribute their work. Um, but um, we can definitely go deeper into that later if you'd like. Um, but for right now, I want to focus on the transformative aspect of the remix work. So when I uh, started remixing in 2008, doing a lot of Real Housewives of like any city, just making any Real Housewife a lesbian, basically, um, I no one really touched the work. It would up, it would go to YouTube, um, it would stay there, and I had very little trouble um, with it after that. And it wasn't until 2011 that I noticed that my videos were being flagged for potential copyright violations upon upload. Um, and many times the video was available and playable, like here, um, it says your video is available and playable. Um, it gives you the breakdown. So the Judy Garland song, the Judy Gar it's kind of a mashup actually, that's at um, four, that comes in at 4.54, that was flagged um, as a potential copyright violation. My dispute was awaiting a response by 12.01. Um, and then the audiovisual content was administered by Lionsgate and then um, that was flagged and that appeal was waiting response um, by November 18th. Um, so immediately as I uploaded a remix to YouTube, I would get these flags and I would have to spend about 15 minutes disputing the content. Um, it wasn't that big of a deal and it was um, because I kind of had my fair use, you know, blurb, I could copy paste that in. Um, and I was pretty sure that they were fair use and so I didn't feel threatened by it at all. Um, but while I spent the three plus weeks waiting to hear back from the copyright holder who ultimately has the final say in the matter, um, I noticed that ads were being placed on the videos. And you can see here, um, so this ad for North Face ran here and on the side. Um, so these would run on the video and all of the ad revenue would go to YouTube and to, in this case, North Face. And that, um, I, I have to admit, I was kind of angry about that. I saw my art practice as maybe, a, through maybe some fault of my own, a little bit more pure than that. I thought that I, my art practice was um, a more radical disruption of top-down culture production um, that threatened concepts of ownership. And the truth was, it did threaten concepts of ownership. And that's what happened. So um, I began to see the reality of my unpaid labor as more of a, a sharecropper type model, where I was working in a system that allowed the user, me, to upload legal fair use content, but only in return for ad revenue. So, and this was under the best of circumstances circumstances, mind you, because most of the time the content was removed. So that Jay-Z, Picasso, Baby, Taylor Swift remix, um, this is a screenshot. This is the, uh, the uh, copyright um, flag notice that I received. So you can see UMG um, says that they own the sound recording, um, and then the visual content is owned by Iconic TV. Um, that comes in at 118, and then they show you the, uh, the moment in time that content ID flagged the, the video. So in a way, in a way, they were right. I mean, Taylor, I don't own Taylor Swift 22. UMG does own it. But what bothered me was that there was no room for interpretation 
um, in this. There was no room for a safety valve in copyright law. There was no room for um, people who were making creative or innovative works to, to let UMG know that they had that right to do so. And so um, between the monetization and the videos being blocked globally, um, I have to admit, in the beginning, I didn't care so much. I, I thought, well, at least they're on Vimeo. They're somewhere. People can find them. People can share them. But then I realized, OK, first it's YouTube, and then it's Vimeo. Like, at what, at what point in time do, do users advocate for themselves? And so instead of, to me, I, I likened it. Again, this is sort of my feminist theory background. But like, you can go and like, build your own utopia. Right? Like, or you could stay and fight for change in the culture or sort of in, in where you're at within the system. And to me, fighting within YouTube meant sort of fighting within the system to change the system that most users use. Um, not only that, but I began to really see the cultural impact of being blocked on the second most popular search engine. Um, the, I started really to question what that meant for artwork that commented and critiqued popular culture. I thought, shouldn't that be in a really public space, not on Vimeo, where you can't find anything, even if you know the title of the video, you still can't find it. Um, I really thought, even though YouTube isn't so much a public discursive space because it's privately owned. It's a public square on the internet. And I thought that it was really important for artworks or just any content that critiques popular culture to be in the space where popular culture lives and interacts and comments. Um, so even though I thought the work was legal, YouTube and copyright holders disagree. Um, they kept tracking, monetizing, blocking the work. Um, and I started to worry not only about the cultural implications for this, but I was talking to um, going to schools and doing com conversations about this and talks about this topic. And I realized that there was an entire generation of content creators who were uploading legal content and being told that the content they were making was maybe perhaps not illegal, but questionable, and that the legality of their work was questioned in some way. Um, and what did that mean for fair use, a right that we all have but is continually threatened? So. Of course, I didn't know the answers to any of these questions. Um, and what was even more scary was that I began to think, are terms of service, do terms of service trump fair use rights? So when you're in this public space that you, you think is public, really, do your rights not apply there because you're, you're within their terms of service or you subscribe, agree to their terms of service upon uploading? So obviously, I didn't know the answers to any of this. Some of them I still don't know the answers to, and we can talk about later. Um, but I teamed up with IBEAM and Public Knowledge to um, do some research and look into this. And so it was a six-month residency to explore the questions and how they applied to my work. Um, and this is primarily what I found. So back in 2008, just as I was learning to edit video and uploading things and making mashups and uploading them to YouTube and not receiving any sort of uh, legal implication for doing so, the hosting platform was receiving pressure from copyright holders who wanted an automated solution to detecting copyright infringements from being uploaded to the site. And so by 2011, they were testing that solution. Um, and that was Content ID. And is anyone familiar with Content ID? I'm sure you're all familiar. Yeah, OK. So I kind of don't need to tell you, but um, it, Content ID scans over 400 years of video daily from more than 5,000 partners. Partners are basically copyright holders, including network broadcasters, movie studios, record labels. Um, and so when there's a match, the content gets flagged. Um, ads get placed on the content benefiting the copyright holder, or the video is blocked or tracked. 
Um, and the information about this process isn't hard to find. Like, I, I really want to emphasize that the information about Content ID and how this process went down is readily available, except that on YouTube and in the spaces where it resides, it's all geared towards advertisers and copyright holders. And I just want to show you a quick example of that. This is the video um, on the YouTube site uh, that talks about Content no ID. what kind of video creator you are, copyright directly impacts the videos you make and the way you use YouTube. Today, millions of people around the world upload their own videos to YouTube. They document world events, create home movies, and make their own independent films. And sometimes, even though it's against our rules, fans pay tribute to a new hit song they love or their favorite movie or TV show by uploading videos to YouTube that use content created by others. So how can copyright holders identify these uses of their content on YouTube, control them, and even take advantage of these new forms of user distribution? The answer is Content ID, a system we've built that gives copyright holders choices about whether and how their content is shown on YouTube. Here's how it works. Copyright holders give us copies of their audio recordings and videos that they want us to look for on YouTube. We call these copies reference files and put these files in a database. This database contains over 3 million files, from pop songs to full-length movies. Every time you upload a video to YouTube, we quickly compare it against every reference file in our entire database, looking for a match. Content ID can identify audio matches, video matches, partial matches, and can even identify a match when one video's quality is worse than the other. Each time Content ID finds a match, we do what the copyright holder asks us to do with that video. Either block it, leave it up, or even start making money from it. With over 24 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute, Content ID works around the clock and scans over 100 years of video every day. It's like 36,000 people staring without blinking at 36,000 monitors all day, every day. Now, copyright management is easy and accessible for everyone. Artists can let fans reuse their content, and fans can create promotional and business opportunities for their favorite artists, making Content ID a true win-win that enables new forms of creativity and collaboration around the world. You can learn more about Content ID by going to youtube.com slash t slash content ID. D obviously is great for addressing the, legitim the legitimate piracy concerns that copyright holders have. Um, I felt that Content ID also put fair users in a legal bind um, that made them the dolphins being caught while fishing for tuna. Um, and so we want strong enforcement when people are breaking the law for sure, but we also want strong limitations and exemptions when people want to and when they do create and innovate. Um, and that was something that I felt was missing from Content ID and missing from the system in general. Um, specifically, Content ID misidentified legal fair uses of copyright content for infringing reuses. And I felt that this wasn't just a simple error. Um, the effects are pretty great. It wrongfully teaches uh, an entire generation of content creators that what they thought was within their rights as creators is in fact illegal or again at least questionable. Um, and in my opinion it highlights and exacerbates to an extent um, what the College Art Association found in a recent study. Um, they uh, polled visual artists, visual art professionals, um, and they found that academics, art historians, museum workers, publishers, artists themselves, academics, um, we were confused and misinformed about copyright and fair use and that as a result um, we 
specifically uh, constrain and censor ourselves um, to avoid the confusion and resulting fear and anxiety when it comes to copyright. And so the self-censorship was for me the, a, a big red flag. So if artists are now self-censoring themselves based on their understanding of what copyright and fair use is, then that seemingly um, non-problematic upload you know, content ID system within YouTube um, has a very real effect for artists who are trying to create and distribute their works digitally online. Um, and so in the end, at the end of the residency, I came to the conclusion that content ID um, is a private agreement between a hosting platform that is YouTube and copyright holders and in my opinion undermines the safeguards for fair use that were built into the law. So as of 2012 over 120 million videos have been claimed by Content ID and obviously there's no way to know how many of those were falsely claimed as fair use. Um, I just want to make a note that this problem isn't, um, it's not just YouTube, first of all, I'm not out to get YouTube or Google, um, but it's also not just for people who are remixers who are using copyrighted content, specifically in their user-generated content. Um, has anybody heard of the Rumblefish picking a wild salad uh, case? Um, so this was a great example of how there's two very different extremes on this topic. Um, one, I think, is my end of the remix work, but then the other is the pure user-generated content. Um, and that's what this gentleman did. Um, he went out in his backyard, and he literally picked a wild salad, uh, put lemon on it, and ate it. And it's all shot with, um, I think it was like a flip cam. So this was back in 2000 and, uh, 2012. Um, so this, to me, is one of the most telling of the flaws embedded in the automated copyright system. Um, so this is called Simple Living Picking a Wild Salad, and the user, Simple Living, documented himself picking a wild salad. As he states in the information section below his video, he says, basically their system identified this video as containing copyright infringing music owned by Rumblefish. They put ads on it, and with the proceeds of the ads going to Rumblefish and partly to Google. Since there's no music in my video, I disputed the claim excuse me, I disputed the claimed copyright violation and Rumblefish was sent a link to my video to check and see if YouTube's automated system had made a mistake. They checked the video and told YouTube there was no mistake and that they do own the music in the video. So the dispute was closed and there was seemingly nothing else I could do. Now what's not stated in that sentence is that the copyright music in question are the bird noises in his backyard. <laughs> and that's what had set off the content ID system, and that's what Rumblefish was fighting over that they, they own the rights to. That last part, the dispute was closed and there was seemingly nothing else I could do, um, is both worrisome but an accurate description of how this process usually goes down. If you've ever uploaded just something to YouTube um, and tried to dispute it, it's a long time-consuming process. Um, it often takes three or four weeks to hear back from the copyright holder, and in the end, uh, there's no guarantee that your fair use claim or dispute will be heard or that they'll agree with you. In the end, they choose the fate of the video. Um, and so this is one of my favorite examples, unfortunately, because it illustrates that it's not just remixers who, or people who use copyrighted content like documentary, uh, documentary filmmakers, people like that. Um, it's everyday user-generated content that's also affected by this. Okay, so at the end of the day, I'm an artist. I've like, gotten into this dark, long rabbit hole of like content ID and, and copyright and fair use. Um, and I'm in this residency, and I'm really struggling. Well, how do I make this visual? How do I um, 
take this seemingly simple concept of sharing digital works online and the, the trials and tribulations that come with it, um, how do I sh make something visual with that? Um, how do I visual ex visually explain how harmful these private agreements are? Um, well, so YouTube gives you the exact frame that Content ID uh, identified the video as a copyright violation. So they give you the time code. So this one is 150, and then you'll see there, kind of, if you can't really see it, but it says 150. Um, they give you the exact frame. They say this is a frame that you have copyrighted material in. This is what um, you, uh, Content ID identified as a copyright material. Um, and this was the frame in which uh, they had the grounds to send the um, the uh, flagged content and put ads on it or block it. Um, so I took that image and I blew them up and I had them painted into 36 by 48 uh, giant oil paintings. <laughs> and I put them in a gallery. Uh, there's, there's one more painting missing from this, but um, I had them framed in gold. I had the, re the video here for reference so you could understand not only the transformative nature, but what the original product was. Um, and uh, place the frames uh, throughout the gallery. And um, by frame, I, I mean the literal frame of the image, um, but also the physical frame. Um, and so for me, this installation not only highlighted the hierarchy of artistic production. For example, you'd never go into a gallery and put ads over a painting. Um, but you would with a YouTube video. Um, but also, for me, it highlighted that this frame now doesn't just represent Betty. It doesn't just represent Peggy and Joan. It represents, I hope, the exact moment that that private agreement affected a user on the ground, an artist who's trying to upload their content, um, someone who's trying to distribute their works online. Um, and so that was the physical representation of, of this um, project. And so. Um, at the end, I ended up submitting a statement to the House of Representatives Subcommittee on Intellectual Property and the Internet um, regarding the takedown process. So the good news is that there has been some movement on this topic. Um, and uh, I don't know, people are looking into it. Well. <laughs> um, but I think the take home message, at least for me, is that policy has a direct impact on artists. And that's something I never realized. I got involved in policy work, but I never felt it on the ground. Um, and so this was a great example for me as to how policy has a direct impact on users, on content creators, um, and how fair use is continually threatened. Um, and fair use, obviously, you guys all know this. Fair use is a muscle. If we don't use it, we lose it. And so it's a safety valve that protects total control and encourages the flow and further creation of, cultural, of culture and artistic production. Um, and so my goal is to make fair use easier to use when it's threatened. And so for me, um, I want to make it easier to defend our work online, harder for legal content to be removed for wrongful copyright violation. Um, and again, at the end of the day, I think we all want strong enforcement when people are breaking the law, but we also want strong limitations and exemptions for people to create and innovate and make new, cool, and interesting work, whatever that may be. So thank you guys for listening. That concludes my portion. And I'm happy to take any questions and just keep the conversation going. Frames of that video, was it from a YouTube video that was taken down? Yes. They blocked it. That um, one. So I can, so uh, it really depends on at what moment in time. So 
this, let me point to them. Um, this one had, I had gone through three or four disputes with this. So, but yes, it's the exact frame yeah. from the video. But I mean the video, um, YouTube blocked it. Right, that was your question. YouTube put ads on this originally um, and then blocked it, but only for like a week or two. And then it was back up. It was all dependent upon who was who placed the claim on it. So Lionsgate, it was fine. It was up for like three or four months. And then another person put a claim on it, which was, um, I don't think you can see it here, but Canal Plus. And then, um, so it was blocked intermittently. And it all, I just had to keep defending it to keep it back up, like issuing the um, disputes, or rather responding, disputing the claim. Yeah, so, and but this one was blocked. But I think it may be back up. Right. Oh, um, oh. But so um, I, I've taught video blogging for years, and I've always told people to create their own content and not use copyrighted you know, material. And YouTube, in their terms and conditions, say that if you um, are flagged for using copyrighted material three three times, mm -hmm. three strikes, and you're out. Mm -hmm. So if people use it too much, they'll cancel their account. Is mm -hmm. that still the way YouTube thinks of users? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a YouTube expert, but in my um, experience, that is when you get a piece of material blocked and you're disputing it. So it's not for these individual claims. So when I say, if that makes sense, I it's it's, I know it's very leggy and hard, very hard to understand because I'm clearly having a hard time explaining it. But um, I, that is only when the content is blocked globally. So that was like for the Jay-Z piece. And that's only if you're wrong, by the way. So the three strikes in your out rule is only if you're incorrectly. Like if you say this is fair use and UMG disagrees, then that's a strike. But you can petition to have your strikes removed as well. So I think it depends on, it always depends on the content. The problem with the private agreement is that it not only depends on the content, but who the copyright holder is. Because Lionsgate was totally cool placing ads on it. And they never removed it. But it wasn't until it got to Canal Plus or another copyright holder that, um, that they had a private agreement to block it. So it, it, it's very hard to figure out who's, what's the fate of the content, basically. And I, I should add that um, on the back end of Content ID, I don't believe that a copyright holder has to prove that they own the content. So that's why there's multiple claims against the content. Lionsgate obviously owns Mad Men, but Canal Plus does not own Mad Men. They're just a licensor. So it's not just the copyright holder, it's also the licensor, to my understanding. I, I did a um, parody video of Hillary Clinton uh -huh. to the tune of Desperado, and it, I had an um, artist create new lyrics, and so the owners of the license for the Eagles' Desperado issued a takedown, and I was going to go against them saying it was fair use, but then I looked at their history of suing people, mm -hmm. and they take all these things to court. So. I ended up letting it yeah. stay off YouTube, but I put it over on Vimeo. And did anything happen on Vimeo? Nope. Yeah. But the the point was that I wasn't parodying Desperado. I was parodying, parodying Hillary Clinton using the Eagles content, sure. which really wasn't a parody of the Eagles. Sure. So it started getting confusing, and I gave up. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I don't. Because I didn't want to go you. to court, you know, when yeah. it seemed to it would be very expensive. Yeah, I hadn't heard that about court. 
I'm totally kidding. Of course, they totally, yeah, because they're really expensive. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds to me like it's fundamentally incompatible to have an automated system, which you seem to acknowledge is sort of a desirable thing to, 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 to actually combat real piracy. And yet, when it says fair use is one of these things that requires constant human judgment on a case-by-case -case basis, okay. well, so it doesn't sound like you can do both those things. Uh, Correct. What, what do you propose instead, if yeah, anything? Yeah, that's, I mean, um, you know, YouTube hasn't come and asked me yet, so it's not, I, these are just my ideas that haven't been vetted by an attorney, for sure. So my, I, you know how Twitter has the verified account where you've got a little check and it means that you're either verified by the company you work for or um, basically no one can inter um, uh, steal your identity, yeah, and impersonate you. Um, I think a similar system within YouTube would be helpful. So that is a verified system for content creators um, or artists or people who are making similar work that is um, is culturally uh, significant, but clearly commenting and critiquing um, those copyrighted materials used. So it's not uploading a full episode of like The Daily Show. You know, it, that that would sort of be excluded from this account. The kind of thing you do and say she does she is not actually a pirate. Well, I think that they yeah I'm not sure if it would if they have the bandwidth to be a you know human eyes but um, some some place where there was a like a fair use safe space for the content to remain online at least until human eyes can evaluate it. Um, so yeah, yeah. Huge amount of stuff that's uploaded to YouTube all the time, and frankly, YouTube's desire to not be to not lose a safe harbor protection to be sort of yeah. looking at things individually. Can there maybe as a starting point be some sort of percentage of what's infringing versus the overall length of the video or something? Can there be if it's because I know I mean there's no mathematical you know uh, uh, yellow line or you know bright line, but as a starting point, if it's maybe under 10 percent of the overall content. Maybe you know, Google could verify its content ID system or change it in such a way that if it isn't like a, a gross sort of appropriation, there's something small within that, you know, it's a five-minute video in four seconds or mm -hmm. something infringing. Maybe that could be a way for them to deal with this, you know, you know with, with the fire hose of stuff that's being uploaded and, and sort of the impossibility of human beings looking at it on a case-by-case mm -hmm. -case basis. But it seems like it's um, fair use is so deliberative. And the uploading is so massive. I just don't see how anybody could could go through this and mm -hmm. make a fair use determination on a case by case basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great a great um, example of how difficult this process is. I mean, I see a number of problems with the the excerpt times. I mean, first of all, I mean, it doesn't anything transformative or anything that. Yeah, I especially with the. It wouldn't be yeah. like a 100% like batting average, but just some way to begin to address this issue yeah. as opposed to this sort of zero-sum game right now. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, you know, instead of attacking the issue from the code writer's perspective, perhaps the dispute resolution perspective, and the Olympic Committee, U.S. Olympic Committee and the IOC actually offer an example of a lot of work for the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, when we have disputes between athletes and promoters and the national governing body, um, in the past what happened is that the national governing body would make a decision, yes, you're eligible, no, you're not eligible to protest in. But what we've had to do is, is have an independent third party sort of appeal 
and maybe that's what YouTube and Google has. But instead of YouTube relying upon uh, the interpretation of the copyright licensee or copyright holder making that determination, that somehow public pressure is put on them, that they create a third-party appeals panel. The people independent of the copyright holder, independent of YouTube and Google, perhaps appointed by each, and they actually hear these closer calls, because a lot of them are close calls. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Woody Guthrie, but years ago he said something that applies, I think, and may be helpful to you. And that is, he said, related to this sort of issue of remake, he said, sing high when they sing low, sing fast when they sing slow. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you certainly did that in your first video, and less so, obviously, when you just carried it in the first video. Um, ask you what you think of when you're thinking of real copyright infringement or really breaking the law. So you mentioned, you know, an episode of The Daily Show, and I agree that's fairly clear-cut, probably. But fair use is, is not often clear-cut, mm -hmm. and it's both bigger, I think, and narrower than the, you know, working definition that you gave at the beginning. So it seems to me that there's a lot of stuff that could be art, Mm -hmm. It would also not be fair use, and I I wonder how you how you reconcile that with you you you've sort of been drawing this bright line that I don't think exists between a copyright a copyright infringement and a fair use. Well, yes, yeah, a copyright infringement and art that should not be chilled or taken down. Mm -hmm. I think it, I, yeah, it's a difficult, it's a, who, who's to even make that call, I think, in, in a lot of circumstances. Like, I don't know. I, and I think that, I think just like with any sort of law or legal theory, it's all up for interpretation at the specific time, judging by the cultural context. And so I think the definition of fair use now, my definition may be a little bit broader or the definition of of a um, of a copyright infringement um, may not. I, I also don't think a copyright infringement is that clear cut either. Like, if you were to upload a full episode of The Daily Show to YouTube, it could be because you need to bring it into class to have a conversation about it. You know, like there's there's I I'm not a lawyer and I don't know if legally like I have the the understanding of the legal process to like defend that if I had to, but um, that, I don't, I have no idea. I don't know to answer your question. Like, I think they're all up for interpretation. And that there is no, there is no definition. Is that too philosophical of an answer for you? Right. I'm, I'm definitely not asking you to get into the legal question. I'm just wondering, you know, the only way we know if something is fair use or not is if a court has ruled on it, mm -hmm. right? And so that means there's going to be a lot of stuff that a court doesn't rule on or hasn't ruled on yet on mm -hmm. YouTube. And it's like, I wonder if you think that stuff should remain up until a court rules or if the artist is unwilling to go to court, maybe it's okay if it's down. Yeah, I mean, hmm, maybe there should be like a holding cell for... No, I'm serious. For content that is flagged by, I mean, that's up for at least that there there'd be a spot for for conversation about the content. 
And that's really what I'm looking for and asking for. I'm not sure that I have an answer that's going to be, that's going to directly answer your question, but like, because I've never thought about it before, but if there's a spot where users, at least a safety zone, where users know these are their rights and this is what they're being held like against, like to compare it against, then they know at least what they're sort of in for. Does that make sense? I, I guess I, I'm looking for more transparency around what the rules of YouTube, what the law, what the YouTube rules of the code of conduct is on YouTube versus what my rights are as a user. So if there's a space like a holding tank, a holding cell, whatever, of like a middle gray zone for that conversation to happen, then that would be great. So should all of them be, you know, back up on YouTube if they're flagged for copyright violation? No, certainly not. But I think that the majority of those videos, if they were to be taken to court, I think that I think that a court would be fair use friendly towards them. I mean, a lot of the content on YouTube is transformative or is being flagged for wrongful copyright violation. I mean, I'm not sure how many times you land on like this video has been removed for copyright violation and you read the description of it and it's a user generated content piece that had like the bird noises and I go back to the bird noises because that's a lot of the stuff that at least I come across just while surfing. Um, and that, yeah. So does that answer your question? Okay. So the part where it's like the artist versus Sony Music's lawyers is the part where we keep losing this, right? Because the artist isn't going to go to court most of the times. Well, yeah, but not only will the art... Yes, but I don't think Sony... Like, there's only two or three cases, at least, that I know of where a copyright holder has taken someone to court over a YouTube video. Right? Does anyone have, like, exact numbers on that? By my counting, it's two or three. The woman who has a happy birthday song... Right, that's like the famous case, and then one or two more. So I don't even think it would get that far that the the artist has the opportunity to say, "Oh no, I don't want to go to court," because the DMCA would never come. That the artist can file a counter notice, right? So if you get to the point that the but you're assuming I got to, he could yeah. have filed a counter notice, and that's kind of like saying, "I'm willing to go to the mat on this." So one of the proposals has actually been that you could preemptively give notice, like, I'm uploading this video and I think it's a fair use. Someone mm -hmm. might come after me, but just consider this my counter notice, leave it up, and then if they want it down, they have to sue me. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think, so that, that sort of takes it out of the realm of let's sit in the holding box until yeah. YouTube tells us what our rights are. It's like, no, I have rights. Yeah. And if we're going to have someone tell us that I'm wrong, it's going to be a judge. Yeah, I Does, like that. What, you what's should necessary to make do that with, I don't know. work? I mean, for a creator like you who's sophisticated about this, you would know to flag it. Mm -hmm. um, but for the, the amateur creators and fan creators who are like, oh, oh, it turns out that was illegal, that's too bad. Mm -hmm. What's what's necessary to make that system work? Well, I think if, if there's a system like that in place, then Word spreads fast over over YouTube of like massive takedowns of content. Like I, I don't know if you remember a couple of months ago when a bunch of gamers content got removed for third party content violation and they were making the content with the copyright holders. Like they were part, they were YouTube partners. And so when things like that happen, um, it creates a cultural sort of informal education process. And I think that if that were to happen, if there was that sort of preemptive program that the culture of YouTube is such that that would be the education process. Like, do you remember when YouTube made that um, copyright school 
and and that's where people were starting to get their their copyright education from but it didn't really get very far because people didn't understand it and it didn't speak to their community base in a in a situation like that i feel like that would be a perfect example of actually communities would sort of self teach themselves how to do that so the fans for example would take note from the remix community and then from there i think it would be sort of a domino effect the same way it was a domino effect with the gamers and that sort of shed light on the content id process does that answer your question i think but i don't think a um an educational tool from youtube would help at least it the the history you know historically it hasn't um <coughs> but i really like that idea and i wonder how we make that happen Require a change to the DMCA safe harbor provision because at present, right. when, when they get the notice, they have to take it down, even if the user has already said right. no, it's fair use, don't take it down. So it's something to take up with Congress as they for sure. their next copyright. Yeah, and I think that that's a great, I mean, not that we needed more reasons why the DMCA needs to be revised, but that's a great example of not just like this is the problem with the DMCA, but here's a solution that's being hurt by current DMCA practice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things you had this is me thinking aloud. One of the things you had mentioned was that it was unknowable how many of the however many millions of videos are, you know, might be protected under fair use harbor. Um, but if you could actually scrape them, it's totally knowable. You just need a random sample of maybe, you know, 2,500 or something like that. Um, and then you would need to have some group of reasonably well trained people go through them. Um, you know, but probably at a quick pass, you could quick. I mean, it seems like one sort of issue here is like, how substantial is the problem? So if, in fact, like, if there's in fact one dolphin and there's billions of fish being captured, then, then as a society we might look at this and be like, you know, well, there's one way to solve this. We looked at them and half the things being removed, we're like, no, these possibly have some kind of legitimate fair use. We might think very differently. Um, I don't know, just sort of thinking a lot. It, se it seems like, like with, with, with some resources, you know, and, and particularly like if you could somehow work with YouTube or just use spiders or whatever to, 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 to find some reasonable population of takedown videos and then randomly sample from them, you could actually figure out, you know, what the scale of the problem is. Mm -hmm. So somebody for should do that. Yeah. My only question with that is, um, how do you do that if they've been removed? Yeah, somehow you'd have to get like the original, you'd have to sort of somehow find like the original population or work with YouTube and say, YouTube, give us access to... All you, of know, your, you know, you know, for the last content. year, for the last five years, like, you know, just let us find a random sample of these videos to look at, right? Um, and then get a bunch of retired trial judges who you know, <laughs> trust their judgment, um, and just Remember go through them and say, like, recently yeah. retired. Recently retired. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember YouTube? Yeah. Like, I feel like they did that. They did that really well. But if you try and search that content for various content, first of all, it's really hard, hard to search for anything. Yeah. Um, but but they did that pretty well, and that was that over. That was by MIT. That was like an MIT project, mm -hmm. I think, at the Media Lab. What was it called? Yeah, YouTube, like T O M B. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but point taken for sure. I mean, they didn't do what you outlined, but it, it was a visual representation of the number of videos that were being removed from YouTube. But I think that was made in 2010. You may know better, but well before the official content ID system had been put into place and, and tested and gone forth and, yeah, put into full effect. Yeah. This is just one potential area for hope. Um, YouTube used to take down all of human rights graphic violation videos of torture and things because 
um, you know, it's not really public space, it's a private platform. Mm -hmm. And a lot of terms of service battles end up being good taste, not what's legal, mm -hmm. right? So Facebook and breastfeeding and other examples. Um, but then they end up working with Witness mm -hmm. to, right. pr you know, put up yeah. an, an age, you know, filter, but then to allow these human rights torture videos to stay up because they're important for spreading awareness. Mm -hmm. And they also actually built out the facial blur feature for activists. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's another thing that right. they can do algorithmically, so it's not this, like, legal question, but it is something that, you know, Witness worked with YouTube engineers to, to help them do. And so I was really curious about how do you get that influence at YouTube? There's lots of nonprofits yeah. that would love to work with YouTube. Um, and so some people that used to be at Witness actually talked about this and wrote a blog post about how, you know, they were actually invited to give a tech talk at Google where they kind of introduced the question and got some people wheels turning. And that was kind of some access to engineers. And then someone pulled a fire alarm, and during the fire jail, they bonded with a couple engineers. And it was like, <laughs> so all we need is perform fire jails. And but there is some hope there of like over years, they actually built a trusted relationship mm -hmm. where they could work privately behind the scenes to introduce these features. Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking that might work better than because I remember like even back in 2006 when you know, Google acquired YouTube, and it was 2006. Like the huge question was copyright, right? Like all the record labels were coming after them. Mm -hmm. People thought it was a dumb acquisition because mm -hmm. of that. And so they were definitely responding to a wave of legal pressure. Mm -hmm. And so if there's any way we can like carve out a little space for free culture within that right. wave of legal pressure. Yeah, yeah, agreed, totally. I think one of the things that's missing from this conversation is also just the lobbying power that users have over content and, and copyright holders. And so exactly in that conversation that happened in 2008 or whenever, in 2011, um, where copyright holders said this is a big problem for us, I there probably weren't users in that meeting. You know, it, so so the balance of power is a little bit skewed, and I, I think that part of the conversation is just about being a little bit more transparent in that process and, and balancing that power dynamic um, with with that probably being behind the scenes, for sure. Um, yeah. Can you work with youth? Um, around or have create workshops off this because like I see you your work is like a bridge between bringing making fair use and copyright real for a wider audience of people who aren't coming at it from a legal perspective and I think this is like super super important something that you know legal experts or researchers often are like why can't we get more people to understand the importance you know like mm -hmm. Pippin Sofa shouldn't just be like the one big event but it should be a continual thing so it makes, and for like a pop culture fan like me, this is really inspiring that I now have another reason to watch Housewives. <laughs> but only if you make a subversive. I will. I will. You gotta, <laughs> on gotta work off your consumption. <laughs> um, but is is there a way? Are you using this as a platform to, or a way to get to get more youth involved? Because it brings together all these different skill sets. That yeah, for sure. Are, I not just youth, of... but adults. <laughs> Yeah, I do. I definitely do workshops on it, um, and I tried the fair use component. Obviously, isn't as detailed as uh, today, but it's definitely um, a component of it for sure. I think any conversation about user-generated content or content creation with the intent to distribute on the web, which like, what kind of other content creation is there? Um, you have to have a fair use component to it, and so it's not just for remix. But I think anytime anybody's making content, it needs to be part of the conversation. Um, and I've worked with, the, I started actually working with youth at Cambridge Community Television and teaching fair use and copyright stuff to them, but I was really appalled. I don't know if I should say this, but when I walked into Cambridge Public Schools, they had a sign on the wall that was like, don't ever use anyone else's content, always make your own, like be original, be yourself, you know, only make original content. And and it was, it, it not 
that there's anything wrong with that, but there kind of is something wrong with that, which is that it ignores an entire um, section of rights that creators have and people have to, to comment on culture, and that was being washed and erased um, by encouraging purely, you know, purely um, original content, which, like, what is original? There's nothing really original. But again, that's like a theoretical conversation. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a great segue to talk about youth and, and uh, yeah, educate them on fair use. My problem is that I, I get tripped up a lot, and they start asking questions, and I don't know the answers to them, and I'm like, I, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know. So that's my own thing that I have to get over and find a way to talk about fair use that is super succinct to the point and is a clear yes and no, but fair use isn't like that. So that's where I, I have a concern about talking about it. And, and, and coming from that educational aspect of it. But um, that's not to say that that's totally stopped me from working with youth. Well, I think it's a really model that uh, researchers should think more about, mm -hmm. like working with artists, is the clear model of like not making uh, or education didactic around these topics, but making it really creative and fun and approachable, and something I don't think that we do a good enough job at. You know, So that's a, that's, you're a really great model for that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, someone on here, you basically uh, have shown or you use art in order to challenge the basically the application of copyright law, the, the way in which it is enforced. So I was just wondering whether you also uh, make or if you know anyone else that is making art in order to actually challenge the, the conception or the drafting of copyright law. Yeah, so artists who are making work that challenges copyright? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, tons of artists. I mean, the most recent is the Richard Prince Carew case. Um, and I think that settled out of that settled out of court I think two weeks ago. Um, so that's the most recent case. Um, a ton of art yeah, a lot of artists. Um, let's see, a few that come to mind are um, can I get back to you? I'll send you some links. I don't have them all on top of mine. But the Richard Prince one obviously is the first that comes to mind. I don't know. I'm sure you got what who are other artists that yeah, duh, Jeff Koons, yeah. Shepard Ferry, yeah. totally, yeah. Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan. <laughs> George Bush. Yeah, oh my gosh, for sure, yeah. I would love to talk about that. Um, yeah, the Shepard Ferry one was a good one. Negative land, for sure. I mean, so you, you only do like, you only basically challenge the enforcement. Honestly, I didn't start off doing any of this. I just wanted to work off my massive consumption of popular culture. And this was just sort of a byproduct of I was spending so much time defending my work online, I wasn't making any new work. And so I had to make new work to show in a gallery. And this this became my life. Defending my work became my art practice. And so um, I, this wasn't the original intention. And I think for a lot of artists, it's not the original intention, maybe maybe a, a byproduct or or um, a subtle thread that runs through their practice, but I think that a lot of artists use popular culture for the critique, not so much. Well, I don't know. I think Negative Land does a lot of copyright stuff for sure, but um, I think it's always part and parcel of a of a of a larger concept. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to share some other artists with you. There's some uh, a great artist had a show. Uh, that just closed in New York where he redid all the Andy Warhol pieces but with new logos, so I should be more specific, the Campbell Soup cans but with 2014 logos. So there's great examples like that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of artists have the same problem where they can't upload their stuff online um, or to YouTube, so I can send you links, but 
there aren't that many images of them. Yeah. It really seems like we've got a problem where the law isn't where we want it to be. That you know we have a long tradition of taking uh, saying that if you have an entire piece of music like a Taylor Swift song, you've got to get a synchronization license mm. if you want to put it up against the video. We've got the court cases that say that taking a few seconds out of a uh, piece of music uh, for a new hip hop work and sampling. Uh, it, to create a, a, a dramatically different work um, and transformative work is a copyright violation and, uh, and is in the way. And then you stick in a company like YouTube that's got, uh, what did you say, um, 24 hours of um, video being uploaded every minute and trying to deal with some um, way of... Uh, avoiding the, the worst thing. So in an mm -hmm. uncertain legal environment and this massive fire hose of uh, content, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the solution is. That in some ways having the, maybe the content ID with YouTube's improved um, appeals processes is the way to go. So a long way to get around a question. You had some uh, videos taken um, down from YouTube, mm -hmm. and did you go through the um, counter-notice process mm -hmm. and uh, and have those things get put back up? Yes, I've gone through the dispute process and then the counter-notification process. Um, it takes about three months on a good, and that's a good schedule. It's a long. Oh, it's supposed to be ten days. Yeah, that it does not take that. I mean, if you, I can't After actually. Ten days, they don't put it back up. This, if you file a counter notice? No, it often takes quite a long time. Now, you're talking about a counter notification. Counter so that's notification, the second, the where, second where step. It's, where it's gone. Because they leave these up mm -hmm. when they're being questioned, right? They so, leave. Like these right now that say that... Um, the copyright notice? Has uh, that somebody's um, claiming copyright in it. That's still accessible. And yeah, it depends on who's claiming it. So this one is Canal Plus. And it says your video is blocked globally. Oh. And this one is Lionsgate. Um, I, this one, I believe, was still playable. It doesn't say it on here. Um, your video is blocked globally, and then you file a yeah, so, counter notice to put it back mm -hmm. up. Yeah. But yeah. when you get to the end of the content ID process, you can still then proceed under the DMCA. Right? And I think that's what Peter is asking Well, no, about. even under content ID, content ID says that you file a counter notice and that they will respond within 10 days. They're using the model of the um, DMCA now for content ID. There's, in my experience, it's been a two-step process. Okay. You dispute the claim, the original copyright notification, and then the, the copyright holder either disagrees with you and issues a counter notification and then you issue a counterclaim and so there that's the two-step process and then after that if they disagree with you which in my experience with the jay-z video they didn't disagree by the end of the second process but it took two months to get there and so by the second and it was down for the entire it was down months. for the entire two months correct but well, then they left it up but right and so because at the end it was the dmca had to kick in they had to take me to court in order for them to keep it down um, but again, I need, I need to emphasize that like that process is not simple and it's super scary and they encourage you to find a lawyer, which perhaps rightly so, but it's not very user friendly, let's put it that way. And I have some screen grabs of what that process looks like and, and sort of how a user would go about that. And um, 
as an artist alone in their studio at like 11 o'clock at night receiving this email, you know, trying to go through the process of, of getting the video back up, it's scary. It's definitely scary. And if I didn't um, understand, like have at least a working understanding of fair use, I'd be like, forget it. I'm not, I'm totally not going to put up with this. Um, because it's not, it wouldn't be worth it, I think, to the user to defend their work. And that to me is, is scary. We have time for one more question. I think Elisa has a little time to stick around afterwards if people want to continue the conversation outside this room. So one, one more question. Okay, well, I spoke already, but if there's no yeah. other question, I'll go. Uh, you said Vimeo has a different process that seems to be more, more friendly to artists. Well, why is that? How is it that they get to do things differently and it works better for you? And um, They just don't have copyright holders coming, knocking at their door, saying that people are uploading pirated or, um, you know, copyrighted content to their site. And so there's no incentive to install or create a content ID system. Not care about because it's number two and not number one at a video sharing site? Um, I think that I, I don't know. But from what I've heard from Vimeo's team is that they're, they are in conversation with copyright holders. But they have, they, they're trying to deem themselves a fair use friendly space. And so before issuing takedown notices or flags or whatever to the, um, to the creator of the content, they're trying to deal directly with the content holder. Um, I'm sorry, with the copyright holder um, on behalf of the content creator. And so that to me is my understanding of Vimeo. But the basic answer to your question is I don't think that it poses the threat that YouTube did to copyright holders. I think they're working on an alternative model and I think the reason why they're so popular is because they're a safe space. Who their customer is. I mean, I think a huge, I don't know exactly, but a huge part of the Vimeo customer base are people who pay some annual subscription to be able to host their materials mm -hmm. there. Whereas YouTube, their primary revenue source is advertising. And so really it's it's the advertisers that it's mostly mm -hmm. the content holders who are their customers. Yeah, um, I had the exact same thought. When I asked them about it, they actually said that the majority of their content now is actually user generated content similar to Vimeo. I'm sorry, similar to YouTube. So people shooting like videos of their holiday parties and stuff like that. It's actually not, you know, the somebody sharing a file who works at an ad agency or whatever it may be. Like, I, but I had the same, the same thought and was corrected on that. I don't know if that's true. That's just what they said. Uh, Jamie, thank, you. thank you guys. Thanks for those questions.